Welcome to episode 84 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today, our special guest and co-host is Phil Amon. Phil was the co-founder with Jason in their first startup. Hey, Phil, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, right. So we got my, uh, my buddy, Phil, who uh, now we've, we've been friends for like, I don't know, is it 20 years now or more? Oh, gosh. Now, now they know my edge. Yeah, so we went to school together at the University of Chicago, and about a year after that, we started our, uh, you know, we, you know, started our first company together and moved out to California. So is Phil a developer as well? Yeah, did you know that? You knew that about me because I'd written, I'd written software for the University of Chicago's psychology department, um, and so I had done that around. And I don't know if Jason, you knew that, but for some reason, yeah, no, oh. I did. I, I knew that you you had told me at one point or another that you had written C. You, you knew, knew C and that you had written a video game when you were in high school or something. Mm-hmm. You remember that? I, I remember yeah. that. So why don't we uh, I, before before we get into any topics, why don't we just do a little background? Yeah, go for it. And uh, I'll let Phil tell the story of how we met, and we'll go from there. I think that'll be the best way to proceed. You know, I'll, okay, I'll tell you this. I knew you guys were going to ask me that, and I was thinking to myself, how did I meet Jason Roberts? <laughs> because I honestly, I cannot, you know, there's some people in your lives and they could be your best friend. And you're like, I don't remember how I actually met this person. Right. Um, but for me, uh, my first memory of Jason was actually math class. I think you're going to go and say we met in math class freshman year. Right. That's right. So we, so we did. But here's the thing. I went to math class and Jason never went to math class, so I don't actually think our paths ever crossed. <laughs> I, I think, like, because my only memory of Jason was I'm sitting in class and we're listening to this PhD guy who was teaching the class. And Jason would walk outside by the window of the door, the door to, you know, the window had a door in it, and he would walk by and look in, but he wouldn't actually come in. And we would see him and he would kind of wave. With a smile on his face. Let me let, let me just guess. He he didn't like the syllabus, so he thought he'd make up his own. Yeah, he. Well, what was it? You got you. Uh, it was the timing thing where it was like you had to eat breakfast or some. It was an early morning. No, class. No, no, because our class was at one thirty in the afternoon. Uh, okay, so it was like lunch. That. So, so let me back up. Let me back up here. Okay, okay, so you know, Jason, I think we should back up a little bit further and just explain that this show is not necessarily going to be an educational show. It's not necessarily going to be about startups no, you know, or about business. I don't think there's any expectation of that. It's point. more about a kind of shooting the shit with an old buddy kind of yeah, show. Yeah, right? that's fine. That's fine. So uh, Phil and I were, we were both math majors, at least we, during our freshman year. I, I, I ended up getting a degree in math. Uh, Phil eventually bailed. Yeah. <laughs> Got a degree in general studies and humanities. With the- yeah, I generally studied for four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually isn't that bad. It's nice. It's a good degree. Right. And I, I actually did it with honors. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. You can generally study for four years and get honors in doing that. So That rocks. Can you get jobs from it? Uh, well, you know, yeah, because it doesn't really matter. You know, I, some of the best programmers I've ever met uh, have all not studied it. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't be a comp sci guy uh, and do well, but a lot of guys, you know, the one of the head uh, – programmers here uh, at, at QAI before we sold to Thomson Reuters, he was an anthropologist, you know, and he played bass guitar. Uh, we, we've had, you know, and I wouldn't say, uh, Jason's a math guy. He's, you know, more theoretical. He's into a lot of other interests and he's athletic. You know, the idea of the, the Milton-esque character, who's the nerd house with the glasses and the tape and awkward and, uh, you know, comp sci, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure those guys are out there, but you know, I was doing theater and, and film, and, and I, I had varied interests. So, Well, like, geek is, is, I mean, in a sense, geek is the new kind of 
anti-hero. Yeah, you know what's weird? A lot of your guests had musical backgrounds recently, mm-hmm. I thought. Yeah, yeah it's pretty huge, Justin, right? There's a correlation, isn't there? Yeah, well, there, I, I think it's pretty, uh, you know, it, there's a pretty high correlation between people who have mathematical talent and people who have musical talent. And there's also a high correlation, I guess, between mathematical talent and people who are good at, right, who like to who write code, I guess, right? So there seems to be something there. You, I, I, it seems to be, I read that all the time when I'm reading about on blogs of some developer or something and they're talking about how they, they're musicians or something. It seems to be fairly common. So, well, let's, uh, you know, I think we should tell the story a little bit though, right? So, uh, one thing I want to say, so we took this class, we were both in this uh, 160s honors math class, okay? And when we started the first week, there were probably like 20 some people in the class, right, Phil? Was that, was that about right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and within a week, full. there were six. <laughs> Yeah, and well, <laughs> everybody exactly. bailed because it was all like proof, math proofs and stuff. So I think I think it went from like twenty something on to six or seven of us, and um, you know, and the class was right, one thirty, and I don't know, I would go to lunch, and then I'd I would oh, inevitably five or ten minutes late, and sometimes I would just be like, ah, screw it, you know, I'm not going in there because we had this uh, math professor who just was so boring to listen to, but um, that's why that's why we first met i don't when we didn't really hang out so much i don't remember i don't remember when we hung out till like middle of the year or something right yeah but i think um, you came to me i i think what your strategy was is to talk to somebody who was in the class and to figure <laughs> out what's gonna be on the final because there was there was a really you were sort of honestly you were someone we talked about in class because you weren't there and he would turn a midterm back or something and he would ask does anybody know jason roberts i think it was like <laughs> in a class what did you say about him well i said i did know him you know, because oh, I had, right. I'd run into him a couple times, and I think we just talked about the class. And I think I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I, it was. I mean, Jason has a sense of humor, so you run into him, and you never took it the wrong way. But he just was never there. And I was like, why don't you just come to class? And he's like, ah, you know what? Jason has various excuses. He's very well intentioned, but um, <laughs> you know what? G- given, that, given that you've known Jason for twenty years, I think really we should take this the opportunity of this show to embarrass that's the hell right. out of him. Oh, absolutely. That's that's fine. That's, that's fine. Well, you know, you see, the reason I think I talked to Phil, I remember the first test, like the mean was like a sixty-three or something like that. Right. And or most people got around, and I'm in the mean, but I mean, most everybody clustered around a 60, low 60s. Right. And I remember I got a B plus for like a, something in the 60s or low 70s, and uh, Phil got 100% plus huh. bonus points. And I was so, I was like, wow, who is this guy, right? Because this is really crazy hard math class. I was peaking. And that was it. so I think that's probably how, why I went to him later in the year when I was prepping for a midterm or final. And I was like, you know, I should go ask Phil what, you know, what his take is on on the final, and what was really interesting, I, I still still um, I still remember this very clearly. I I went to him to talk about either midterm or final, and I said, "So what do you think? What have you been studying?" And, and he says, "Well, look, you know that there's going to be a question about X because he's covered because Buckley. Well, Buckley was his name. He says, "Well, Buckley's covered this, and you know it has to be a question about this, and it has to be a question about that." And he told us there's going to be a question about this other thing. So therefore, you've got forty or five questions. Per- you can guarantee that are going to be on the test. And he's like, my guess is this other question is going to be on there too. And he literally predicted the test. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I had always had a habit of just trying to study through all the material we covered, whereas Phil stopped, thought very strategically about it and just, and just really stood back. Well, so I he was life hacking at age 20. How old he are you guys? 18, yeah. 19? Yeah, 18, yeah. 19. But that, that's actually true. And I, I'm in business school right now and I do the same exercise, which I think is valuable. In fact, you can translate that into anything is you try to imagine 
what the experience will be like. And therefore, by psychologically preparing yourself, by setting those expectations, you're more prepared. I mean, it's very hard to prepare generally for a test. And you could, in theory, study every single thing you ever covered. But you know the goal of the teacher. The teacher is not uh, a random stochastic process. The teacher has, um, in a sense, some goal. And the goal is to capture knowledge. So unless the teacher writes a poor test, they're going to cover certain material, which is considered like foundational. So if you look at a course, you're like, well, of course they're going to, if he was going to do a proper test, he has to cover like three of these five have to be found, you know, foundational questions about the course material. So you think about like, what is the core takeaway from the class? What's the meat of this? And usually it's the fifth question that differentiates everybody. I mean, most everybody's going to get, should get half the test right, 60%. And then it starts at then he's going to try to pull people apart and ask questions that are fringe questions that, you know, he never really addressed. But if you commanded the core material, you're going to get there. So hmm. I think that's true of life. If you go to talk to uh, a VC or you're talking to uh, or in a sports game, you know you're playing a team. You know how they like to play. Um, you know, a soccer analogy would be appropriate here. <laughs> I think, Jason. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not going to go to you on a soccer analogy. Soccer analogy. <laughs> cue, yeah. Cue the soccer analogy. But it is true. But it's life. It's the same. You know, job interview, yes. they're going to, you know, what kind of questions they're going to ask, right? Well, so that was, but I have to say that really impressed me at the age of 18 or 19, the way he was thinking about it. And it helped me too, because I, you know, I had been to class so much. <laughs> so, you, you know, when I had, he kind of gave me a crib sheet. So I came in there and I was like, oh, that, that helps. That really cuts down my study time. But so I had been kind of screwing around and I, I don't know, I wasn't so good at time management in uh, college. I spent way too much time talking and hanging out with people. And, <laughs> And, and, and that resulted in me skipping a lot of classes, and, and that's a whole other story. But the the thing was is that, you know, I I wanted to ultimately I wanted to be a math major, and I wanted to get in the second year what was called honors analysis, which was claimed by the math department to be the hardest math course in the country, and you're, you it's invitation only, right? You can't just sign up for it, and they'll invite the very top people from the class we were taking our, your freshman year, um, into this class, and so. You know, I'd kind of skated along and got some, I think, B pluses or something like that. And then I realized, oh, I better ace the final. My, I better ace third quarter um, if I'm going to get into it. And that's when I got a little more serious and, and, and finally got an A in the course. But I, part of it was that I just I hung out with you a little bit, Phil, right? And we, we talked about the oh, course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's true. Like extrapolating that out is you had a goal that you wanted until, until you had something that you thought was important to yourself. You, you couldn't see the value in doing 160s math because it was, you know, calculus. And I think the problem with higher level math is that it becomes so abstract. And I wouldn't put calculus in that category, but as you keep going up, it becomes so abstract. You kind of still need to be grounded. And one thing I can say about myself for sure is, you know, as Jason mentioned, I kind of got out of the math program by my junior year is that I felt disconnected with reality. You're dealing with topology and four-dimensional surfaces and all this stuff. And I've, you know, my mind works on a more practical level. And so I sort of gravitated more towards things that I could get my hands around. I, I know that you guys, um, you co-founded a, a software startup together. Um, Renaissance, yeah. that was Renaissance Research Group. And yeah. how, how old were you guys when you did that? And how did that all come about? And let, let's okay. let Phil answer this, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I'm interested yeah. to hear Phil's, yeah. Phil's like. Yeah, it's a good story. Well, I hope I get it right. Um, and I can only tell from my perspective, I guess. I went home after college. Um, I was in a theater group, so I had spent the summer in Edinburgh doing some uh, performing, which culminated in uh, 
a trip that we, we did fundraising for. And I got back to my hometown. I was raised in Northern Philadelphia area. And I was, I just went to work for my dad as a junior accountant. So I, I picked up some accounting uh, skills and I had a good time. You know, the, the guy who was the senior accountant there was fun. And, uh, you know, we listened to Howard Stern and had a good time and it was a small company. So it, it wasn't stifling, but you know, it was, it was just a job. Uh, and then Jason called me and I want to say out of the blue because Jason and I were friends, but it wasn't like I'm sitting there expecting a call from him, you know, right. and he calls me and, and says that he's, he's got some idea for a startup and I don't even know if he told me a whole lot about it. It was options trading. He had gotten a, a job working for a, an options, proprietary options trading organization and had some idea and was wondering if I wanted to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I'd never heard the word startup before. You know, I think so many people who are in college these days, they know stories of Bill Gates and they know stories of all these guys who've done startups and have gone out there. And for me, I guess I was somewhat sheltered from that notion. I mean, my dad was definitely a businessman, but I don't think I connected all the dots at that age to say, oh, this is something I can do at 21 or 20. And so I was like, well, there's got to be money in it. I it's just, quite like, a specific kind of culture, isn't it? I mean, a lot, a lot yeah. of a lot of my friends and family back in the UK just aren't connected into startup and the startup well, world, yeah. Well, the other thing is this, you get her, this is in 1993, 94, right? right. right? This is before Netscape. <laughs> this is dinosaur. This, this is before the Netscape. This is right. before any of the startup culture world. I don't think I ever used the term startup. I, I probably just said, hey, you want to start a software company? I think it was how I termed right. it. Because I was in a the job I really couldn't stand, my boss, and I wanted to get the hell out of Chicago. And uh, and I so I was, and you know, when you're sometimes when you're unhappy, you start scheming, coming up with ideas of like, how can I change my reality? <laughs> you right. know? Right. And I thought one way to change my reality would be um, to start a company. And it sort of coincided with an idea I had at the time. And I thought, well, maybe I'll come up with this idea and I can get some funding and then move, maybe, you know, move out to California. And Phil was, you know, he, like I said, like Phil mentioned, you know, it wasn't like we were best friends and we hung out every day. He was one of, you know, a dozen or so people who I thought were, who I was friends with, who, you know, that maybe the, your top so dozen or so friends. Right, like, it wouldn't be weird if you called who them. You thought, was, who you thought could do it, right? You thought, yeah, well, okay, no, this I this mean, guy's got some smarts. I, w- were you thinking of him from from a coding point of view or from a sales point of view? I think he was the only friend I knew who knew. Uh, he's the only one I knew, only friend of mine who knew how to code. I was your Obi Wan, right? Was. <laughs> I was your only hope. I was my only hope. He was my only hope. So he was the only one I knew who could code. And but I also liked Phil, right? We hung out. He was he was a funny guy, and you know we would we would hang out periodically. And I think when I was sort of uh, formulating the idea for this company in my head, I said, oh, you know, Phil can code. Man, that would be fun to start a company with Phil. I probably well, what, what was the pitch, Phil? How did he pitch you? Oh, you know, it's a long time ago. He used a, a silky voice. <laughs> oh, I could get into did, that. Did he say, right? we'll no, be rich? We'll he, be, we'll be you know, no, there wasn't a pitch of that. No, you're right. Okay, so specifically, it wasn't like, uh, you know, sugar plums, we're going to do this and we're going to IPO. And again, like, I think that whole mythology was not well formed, at least in my head. And I certainly don't think if someone came to me and pitched me that mythology that I would have bit and taken it, taken the bait because it, I hadn't, I hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid yet. And I think now you look around, you see a lot of young people with startups, they all, the Kool-Aid's well, I mean, they're well drunk on that. And you know, they're ready to be multimillionaires and they're IPOing and they so much more sophisticated yeah. understanding of even how the process works. I didn't know what venture capital was. Um, the guy who ended up putting money in was really what you would call an angel. 
But really, if you look at it, he was he was an angel, but he was kind of more like um, you know how like some businesses have venture arms in them. So you know he's in the business of proprietary trading, and so he's kind of funding an employee or who used to work for him to kind of break off and develop technology that he would find useful. So there's a little bit of a the venture arm of a you know a corporation if you want I to think see, about it like, like the R&D department kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like you know cuz corporations have internal R&D that they do and sometimes they spin those things off or start them as separate uh, companies. And so but I do think that his father was big into doing venture stuff or at least was involved in that kind of community so I think it was familiar to him. And certainly wasn't the first time he did investing, but I would I would say that we were kind of very obviously first time entrepreneurs and I think he was a young angel if anything so what so was the idea it was new okay so, so i was hired by this company to do research and development but being right out of school um a lot of times what they'll do is they'll give you an opportunity to go down on the trading floor the options trading floor so you know when you see on the news like financial news you see these hundreds of thousands of these guys standing around these colored jackets yelling and screaming you know about yeah, prices yeah. buying and selling right so like, that's, like in that, like in the eddie murphy movie trading places that's just like uh, that that's just right. like that that's no, right, think, that's think right. just like that Exactly like that, right? And so, um, <laughs> you know, there's always a couple old guys too, you know. Um, right. So, you know, that's the way it was. And a lot, of, a lot of that world has started to become electronic, so it's disappearing. But at the time, that's the way it was. And so I was given an opportunity for like a month or two. They just said, hey, why don't you go down on the floor and, and work as an assistant trader or clerk, is what they, what they would call you. And I did. And after about a day, I was bored out of my mind. Because really, being an assistant trader or clerk is you're just running around to all these guys in their pits, grabbing carbon copies of the trades they made, running back to a booth, typing in the trades, printing out a position in their risk sheets, and then going out and handing it to them back and forth all day long. So you kind of figure that's all you're going to do after a couple hours, and I was I was going brain dead and just doing that. And uh, you know, other guys who were down there, you know, they would they would make their rounds and they'd stop and they'd read the funnies in the paper and just kind of basically screw off, and then they'd go and make a couple more rounds. Where I was going, I was just getting really bored, and I said, okay, well, if I want to be a trader, because part of me was thinking, you know what? There's there's two worlds here. They're the guys who are upstairs writing the code or creating the algorithms and stuff, and they're getting paid a salary, and they're getting in at seven a.m. They're leaving at five or six at night. And uh, and they're just sort of like you know that that's what they do. But these traders were making hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars. And they would show up at eight fifteen, fifteen minutes before the market opened, leave, come and go as they pleased. And they'd come up at the end of the day at three o'clock, maybe just check out their P and L for the day risk, and they're out of there. And I was like, wow, you know, that's what you want to do, right? I mean, these mm-hmm. guys, it exactly. seemed like fun. It was like being in a sport. They would just go down there, yell and scream and make some money and then they were done for the day. And I was like, you know what? So if I'm, if I'm being going to be up here, I'm going to work more, get paid less, you know, then who's the asshole? You know, <laughs> I would be an idiot if I do this. And so I started thinking that I, I want to be a trader rather than just, you know, writing code. And so when I was down there, but once I got down there, I, 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 two things happened. One, I thought, well, I'm not learning how to trade by being down in the pits here, handing people pieces of paper. It's like the equivalent of learning how to play basketball by handing towels to the players, you right. know, at breaks. I mean, you're not learning anything. They're not saying, hey, well, here, Jason, this is how you want to think about your options position. They're just like, you're my trades. <laughs> you know, where's my position, right? <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? What you really want is you want some kind of like a simulator, like a video game that's just like this. And you get really good at it because really options trading is like comparing lots of different prices and risks and numbers and, and, and looking at the related values and trying to figure out opportunities to, that are good to buy and sell and create, you know, find profit opportunities. So 
I, I, I started building for myself. I just I took out a loan from the owner of the company and I bought myself a computer and every night I would go for a couple hours and I learned, you know, teach myself C and and MFC back in the day and, and started building myself like a little prototype, a little video game to add, you know, to uh, like a series of like little quiz quizzes about how to you know, to get better at this. And um, at the same time, I was bored sitting around, so I would just bring these books on C and algorithms. I would literally sit in the middle of these pits reading these books, which was really funny because the traders looked down at me like, dude, what are you reading? That has to be like nerd of the year award, right? Yeah. That's got to be. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I just could, I just could sit there and do nothing all day. I'm yeah. bored. I'm just like, all right, well, I'm going to sit down in the pits and I'm reading, you know, and I, and so I, I did that. And after a couple of months, I kind of had some prototype stuff together and, and I was friends the way I knew that the owner of the company was the father of a friend of mine I went to college with. And but with the, both the same name, um, John Stafford, and uh, and 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 John Stafford the third when he he had transferred into University of Chicago um, just that year, uh, our junior year, and just in order to play, he wanted to, he wanted to play soccer. He had been going to another school and he transferred to UFC just to, for some reason to play because he wanted to play soccer, and uh, he played soccer on the you know in the fall, and as soon as the season was over, he dropped out. And so, but I hung out with him when he was there and, and the reason he dropped out, which is hilarious because I remember talking to guys like a couple, you know, it's like November or December, but you know, soccer scene has been over a couple weeks and I'm like, Hey, what, where's Stafford? They're like, Oh man, you know, he, uh, he dropped out. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Who drops out of, what's he working at McDonald's or something? I mean, that's stupid. And they're like, Oh yeah, he's loaded. And it turns out, of course, his dad is worth, you know, huge amounts of money and has a big, you know, successful trading firm. And so John went and was kind of tr- starting, you know, try, you know, I guess trying his hand at trading. So anyway, I knew John. So when I was graduating, um, he had asked me if I wanted to um, maybe hand a resume in there and, and potentially get a job doing research development or as assistant trader. And so that's how, how I got pulled into that. And so when I had this idea, um, I, I just, you know, John and I would hang out periodically and we're literally just lifting weights together. And I told him my idea and he's like, yeah, it sounds good. Let's do it. I think, I think the answer to my question was we're building software that helps traders learn how to trade. That's right. But I want to give you the story. <laughs> I want to give you the story. So that's when I called up Phil right around that time. And I said, you know, because, oh, you know, a couple weeks before that, when I, I, I initially called Phil telling him about starting a company together. And he's like, you know, sure. Call me when you got funding as if like, you know, fat chance. Right. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, all right, I got funding. When can you be out to Chicago? Be back. You know, when can you come out to Chicago? Okay. And he was sort of shocked, but then he came out and then, uh, we ended up uh, working together kind of good stuff. Were you going. both coding or were you, was there like a, a kind of sales role or how did that work? No, we just launched right into coding, right? Well, oh, just one other thing. So we worked in Chicago for a few months and then we moved out to Pasadena, California. Okay. Just took off for California. And the reason I, mean, I, I got happened, on, I got on the J train, you know, mm-hmm. and we talk a lot about founders, right? And ideas. And I've listened to a lot of shows there's always that silent, I mean, we talk about co-founders, how important it is to have a second guy. I think being the second guy in, or the, the first guy pulled in, whatever you want to think about it, you're, it's not really your idea. And the circumstance and context under which the thing evolves is not really your focus. So the passion kind of is a secondary, it's sort of like residual high or contact high on the passion. And Jason is very good at contact high. You know, he he has a lot of energy. He blows a lot of energy out into the room. So that feeds the energy. But it's so critical, you know, because you could do a whole podcast about number twos, like guys who get pulled in who are critical to success, but don't necessarily follow that 
classical pattern of, you know, you slipped in the tub, hit your head, got an idea, you right. make a phone call, you get some money. But it's like, who's the first guy you call, right? You get this idea, you have this money, now what? And as an entrepreneur, you go, who am I going to call? Where's the A-team? And it's, I'm not saying I'm the A-team, but you got to think about like, I, for Jason and where he was in his life, as limited as I was, <laughs> I was his, you know, his best shot at getting something done. The other reason why everything sounds like, you know, okay, well, he makes a call and then I leave my, you know, job and I go out to LA is that my opportunity cost was so low. You know, it's, I was making so, in a sense, relatively speaking, you, you, I'm not making a lot of money and I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, things going on in my life being that young. And I think a lot of young people would find themselves in a similar situation. Their cost of taking a risk is so low that even if I failed in this startup with Jason, it would be an adventure. And the downside isn't, oh, well, you're making six figures at a salary. You know, you have to give that up and yeah. deal with the stress of a family and the attention. So I think when you're young, again, with the opportunity cost being so low, start saying yes to things, not everything, you know, high probability events. And especially if you find yourself in the co-founder spot like me, where you're getting a call from someone who's saying, hey, I've got a great idea. You might not, it might not be your idea, but you could go along for the ride and it could be, it could be a lot of fun. So Phil, did you start, I mean, as, as you, as you develop software, was there a point where you, I mean, in fact, I know there was a point where you guys made a first sale. Could you tell us a little bit about getting to that first sale and making that first sale and what it felt like? Well, one thing, Justin, you have to say is that that's like that we that was years into it. Years, yeah, right. So it's not like we went and wrote code for three months or six months. I mean, we move out. He uh, let's see. I initially called him in sometime like January or February. He if of like ninety four. He moved out in like March. We stayed in Chicago, bought some monitors and computers, um, and then uh, once my lease was up in June, we bolted and, and drove out to uh, Pasadena, California. And the reason we moved out there is that my best friend from high school was living in Pasadena. I had visited him, um, and I just like, oh, this is a great area. And so I said, Phil, hey, let's do it in Pasadena. And he's like, Phil was just like, whatever, man, sounds good to me, right? Because he's living, he's living in, in his parents, working his dad's firm. He's you you know, it's probably not he the wants most an awesome. adventure. Well, yeah. that's the thing, oh. right? Exactly. Oh, okay, so how so how long did it take to make the first sale? So, I mean, what what was the path? What was the journey? Well, as I said, you know, you're jumping three books ahead. So essentially, what happened is we were out there for three years, right? Three and a half. So years. you were coding for three years. Well, or? you see, we had to we had to have enough of a runway to make every single mistake. That I mean, because think about this: two kids. I'm talking kids here. Twenty one year olds, self supervised. In LA, with a friend who's a stuntman, is this starting to size up to trouble? All right, I'm I'm a hardcore video game dude, right? Jason is sports enthusiast. He gets a, he has addiction problems, right? So I'm bringing video games in. We're and, it, and you're, we're not, and he has trouble structuring his time, right? So it's just we made every mistake. So the amount of time it would take us to do, if you, if you were to look at Jason's productivity today or my productivity today as a programmer, we would do in a month or two what it took the two, uh, us clowns at 21 years to accomplish. And I mean, partly the reason why we are who we are today is because we made those mistakes. We invested in um, failure in a sense. We, we paid the failure monster heavily and we learned and it was painful. 
but it wasn't a huge cost for uh, the venture guys because, or the angel investor, because in a lot of ways we were really paid <laughs> very we were little. paid like we were we were yeah, paying it, ourselves thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, it, it was small. T- so we were small fries. I mean, if, for him, it's it, like it, a lottery ticket. These guys are either going to pull it off or they're not. Either way, I, his argument would be e- either way. I can use it internally, right? It's not it's not a pure play in the sense that he's just investing in a company and it'll either hit or not in the market. Even if it doesn't hit in the market, he can use it internally. So yeah, there's because, co- yeah, because their company they would have you know, half a dozen to two dozen assistant traders that needed to be, um, who needed to get up to speed on how to become traders, right? And they didn't have any real... You know, this, this doesn't sound like a rags to riches movie. It sounds like a coming of age movie. It really is. I, we did mature on that and we learned a ton. I, I did personally well, learn a ton. Well, one thing you have to remember too, first of all, like I said, this is all pre-internet. This is, we didn't have a network at the time. This is, we were, we were, you know, our, our way that we would share code is we had a floppy disk that we'd flick across the room for a sneaker it. net. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> a little disk. It was frisbee net. Frisbee it was net. frisbee net. Like here, I mean, it would sling yeah. the ball at the back of the monitor. Right. Get points if you like hit Mitchell on the way. Mitchell was a stunt man, stunt guy who had a desk in her office. You'd, you'd bank it off his head. And I actually got pretty good at throwing those things. Yeah. I really yeah, did. So, well, you know, we're learning C++ and MFC. We changed directions like five times because every time that John Stafford or his dad would come out and take a look, they'd be really, really excited, but then they'd want to change ideas. Yeah. Oh, you guys should do this, you do that. So we would, we'd change ideas on our own, but a lot, a lot of times we'd change ideas based on um, their reactions to things. So they we would like, call that, don't they call that pivoting now? Yeah. Pivoting. It, it, that's a very... <laughs> euphemistic. <laughs> yeah, euphemistic term for it. I mean, we would just fail and then get up and start running in a different direction. But the, I, you know, I mean, software development in those days was so completely different, right? I mean, if you're working with the kind of scripting languages that we're used to working with now, such as PHP or Ruby, I mean, stuff like pivoting happens 10 times faster than like a really deep environment where you've written everything from the ground up and it's like all compiled, right? Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, well, you know, and, and, you know, we're, and like, yeah, because C++ was, is complicated. And MFC, the Microsoft Foundation class framework, was very complicated. Um, and we're building a, a – we had this very ambitious thing we were trying to build. And we changed it several times based on who came out. So, yeah, it was a lot of huge pivots and it was a little, very complex. And we're definitely building some stuff that was like you're trying to simulate a real derivatives market. And, and, and options market and all this sort of complicated math. And then we had all these very sophisticated real-time updating grids showing all these prices that, that Phil was building. I mean, it's very um, – there's a lot to it. It was and ambitious. That's why it, yeah. Oh, it okay. Ambitious. So, okay, so from the, from the start point, then you're kind of stumbling along like a, you know, a couple of kids, like eating your ice cream, playing your video games, and then something good happened. I'm guessing, right? Well, I think uh, two years in, I think a watershed <laughs> moment, and maybe Jason would disagree, but – we about two and a half years in, we had a major presentation to John Stafford, the junior, the father, who came out, and in a, I think he was out in LA for a number of reasons. I don't think it was just to visit us. I'm not sure. I don't remember that, but it was yeah, a big yeah, moment. Yeah, right. It was yeah. a big moment. Tell and, us about it. Well, we were. It was a simulator. Like the original idea for the product was to build, like Jason was saying, a simulation. And the idea, of course, is obvious. If if you can trade on the simulator, you're not putting real money at risk. You can learn. Blah, blah, blah. It's a great story. Works. Um, the problem was, and this is kind of obvious in hindsight, is that the, the more realistic the simulator becomes, the more it's just as hard to do the simulator as in real life. Meaning that 
the more advanced the model becomes, the more complicated you make the model, yeah, it becomes more realistic because it sort of matches the terrain, but the model itself becomes then less useful because it's as complex as the terrain. You might, right. And so the problem was we had, had to have some sort of way to bridge the gaps. And one of the things we did was we came up with these like flashcards, if you want to call them that. They were like hypercard. But it was, in a sense, more sophisticated, but essentially that. And it would ask you questions. It would build up knowledge that we felt we needed to bridge the gap that we had created with the model being so complex. And when they came out to see the product, that flashcard element or that educational component with just sort of the the learning elements and the repetition and there was lots of questions and quizzes and that became the focus. And they were saying, there's your product. And I think they have a euphemism called emergent, right? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, the product sort of popped and then it became obvious that this is what you can sell. And in, the, and in a way, the product inverted. Instead of being a simulator that had a menu button for, you know, uh, tutorial or help, it became an educational quiz and, ed, you know, like questions and chapters and education. And the simulator was a tool that you kind of think of as a final exam or something you would use along the way to support the educational aspects. So kind of inverting. Yeah. And, and in a way, so you're, you're kind of saying it's the, same, it's the same two pieces, but it inverted. And just by switching those two pieces around, you kind of moved yourself positionally in the marketplace. And that's the kind of switch we, I think we needed because a lot of people need that remedial. They need to start at square one, learn what a put option is, learn what a call option is they can work their way into simulation uh, and they certainly feel safer with that. And were um, the Staffords buzzed about that at that time? Yeah, they were pretty excited. And, I, and, and it was actually at that point that they started feeling that they had something, you know, that tangible um, feeling that people like because, you know, you hear vaporware all the time and chalk and talk and everyone talks about ideas, which are fantastic. But once you start playing with something and seeing something, there is a palpable excitement because there's an immediacy to it. And that's why I think it's so great to have working mock-ups or things you can show. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting about it? So, because we, we, we spent, you know, whatever, two or three years, three years, I guess, in, in Pasadena just writing code and not really talking to customers because then we'd get a show and tell with the staffers or, or, or some similar things. We went to trade show once, I think. And, but when we eventually, we moved back to Chicago. Um, you know, for, you know we, we figured, okay, if we're going to really hit all these customers – I mean, they're, 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 all, the, all the options trading, or the, the majority of the options trading takes place in Chicago. Um, and we had to lead into a lot of these firms because Stafford Trading was one of the biggest right. option trading firms in all Chicago. That's right. Right. And so we back there and we went back there and we, we sort of had to transition from two guys doing research development in California to two guys actually building a company. And what was really funny is that you know, there was like about two months where we we're just like, okay, we got to burn these things on CD-ROM and we got to like, you know, just kind of tie up all the loose ends. And we did it. And I remember we, we went on our, I think it was like our very first big presentation and it was to one of the other biggest trading firms, uh, uh, options trading firms in Chicago called Whole Trading. And they basically said they wanted it. And we sold like fifty or $60,000 worth of licenses in that first meeting. You just sold $60,000 worth of, of software on your first pitch. So you pretty much uh, got a long way towards getting back the investment that those guys had made. Well, sort of. I mean, that was a big, that would make a big chunk out of it. But, um, you know, what was interesting of that first meeting is 
Phil and I didn't know what to do. They said they wanted to buy it, and we're like, okay. Like we had, we didn't understand how you, a transaction was performed. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay, you gonna give us a check here, or oh. <laughs> you guys gonna give us a sag of cash? I mean, it was hilarious because we really had no idea what we we're supposed to do. And I think we just sort of, okay, they said, okay, yeah, we'll take you know X number of licenses, and I think we tallied up in our head that would be, for some reason, sixty thousand dollars or something like that sticks in my mind, but. Um, and we go back, we walk a few blocks back to the office, and we're sitting in there, and we're like, okay, so what do we do? And then I, I, I can't remember how we figured it out, but essentially we realized that we're supposed to, like, create some kind of an invoice and mail it to them. And, and, then, and then go over there and install software and, and set things up. And that they were at some point, gonna, within yeah. some number of days, going to send us back a check. I mean, I don't know how we figured that out. We just did, sort of, you, did you, like, jump for joy? Did you, like, walk out of the building and both go, yeah? Yeah, we were pretty excited. I mean, we were, yeah, I think I, we were on a high when we were walking back. I well, you also remember, like, you're also deer in the headlights. Because, okay. uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, giving presentations is tough. And you've got to stay on your feet. And they're asking a lot of questions. And then when they say yes to it, there's a tendency to keep talking and you know, you talk to sales guys and yeah, you need to learn when to, you, when to just shut up yeah, because they have that expression in sales, which I love where you buy it back, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, you sold it and you bought it back. Uh, and so I think we, I th- in some ways, maybe that was Jason and Jason and I can know when to shut our mouths to a degree. Like Jason definitely talks a lot, but he, you know, he can pull back. So we, I don't think we bought it back, but in, there was a sense that, there was a lot of things we could, you know, fumble and do wrong. But because we were so young, I think people gave us a pass. And that's another advantage of being young and starting out. So you're 22, 23, and you're talking to a 40-year-old or 45-year-old. There's a sort of innocence that, there, you know, it's great if you're polished and you've got everything in the, you're all your ducks in a row. But if you do fumble a little bit or you, you maybe try to, you buy it back or you oversell or you don't know how to do an invoice, you get a little bit of a pass, and I think a lot of customers did that with us. What, what did the Staffords say when you'd, when you'd made that first $60,000 sale? Yeah. They were like, oh, yeah, we, we was, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, they were pretty psyched. And, yeah. you know, we were, we were excited. I mean, you figured, okay, there's all these trading firms in Chicago, and then there's some in New York and San Francisco and London. And we figured, okay, you know, we're off to the races. I mean, you, you, the first time you step up to the bat, you hit it out of the park. And even though we, you know, obviously didn't really know what we were doing, um, we just sort of managed it. And, but it took us about six months to a year before we started really getting things going. So I'm living with my 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 then girlfriend, my now wife, Sandy, uh, at the time, and she was she had a job that she was not happy with, but she had she had had a background in PR and marketing and just just general how to do small business stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. she said, "Look, you know, if you guys will pay me the same salary I'm making my current job, she's like, I'll come on board and help you guys." And I talked to Phil about it, and Phil was like, and I, and Phil knew Sandy, and he, he and he knew Sandy was was smart, and you know, and and um, was like, okay, well, fine. And so we bring her on, and she really kind of professionalized us. Like okay. she's like, all right, you guys got to get suits, and we need to get some marketing material here. We need to get a trade show. We need to get this thing. We need to get on uh, QuickBooks, and we need to get on a payroll service. And, I mean, she really kind of got us were you here. like still walking around in your california shorts and t-shirt stuff in chicago going out to these presentations no i had jeans <laughs> right. and a t-shirt in chicago i think in a jacket okay. but we didn't we didn't really i mean literally sandy was like okay let's we're gonna go down to um this high-end men's clothing store was it mark shale <laughs> yeah we did it was mark shale yeah and she's like you guys are each need to get two really really nice suits a handful of shirts and ties you know i mean she really like and so from then on we were squared away 
Yeah. Uh, but she took us. It took about a month or two, and, and we were then we became a small, a well-oiled small company of three people. Actually, what and kind of impact did that have on sales? I think it went, I think that had a big impact because what would happen is she spent a lot of time doing, in addition to the accounting and the marketing and the stuff, she would do customer support and also set up the sales meetings with us. So we would do a lot of things where we would send out we would send out sort of like direct mail to these other trading firms. We, we came up, I think we came up with a membership list to the exchange, to a few of the exchanges and just direct mailed them brochures and they would do follow-ups. And so Sandy would organize sales presentations and she'd be like, all right, Phil, do you want to do tomorrow? We got to meet You got to do a sales presentation with this firm and this firm or whatever. Or sometimes she'd be like, all right, you know, Jason, you need to fly out to San Francisco next week. I hear, I set up the flights. Here's your hotel. You're going to meet with these three firms on this day, these five firms in the other day, bang, bang. And we just make it happen. Right. And that's what happened, right, Phil? And that was more or less. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you need somebody who can be that for you. It, it, one of the things, the challenges of any startup is how do you grow? And if, you, if you're a single founder and you're struggling because at some point, I mean, it, clearly somebody has to come on board to help, right? That second hire, that third hire, um, I think it makes sense. What Jason did was to bring somebody on very early, and he clearly chose someone who was complementary, uh, or, or not not like opposite skill set. I'd say similar skill set, which some people say is a danger. Like, don't bring two coders on. Um, you know, find a marketing guy. Uh, in sense, that was a, you know trouble for us. Why did it work with Sandy then? I mean, what, how come she, she was had able the to confidence? She was dating Jason. Uh, <laughs> they already had a connection, man. It's like, well, she was the ideal because in some ways she had the confidence. I mean, you look at Sandy; he's an individual. She has the confidence to speak to Jason. You know, he's tough and I have the confidence to speak to him. You know, you have tough founders who they have a strong passion. They're very driven. They have strong direction. Um, you need to have counterbalances that, that are strong and can communicate. So I think she had all the right skills to talk to me and Jason in a way that uh, facilitated constructive growth. Because there's two things that we, we became good at. I mean, we could write code. We knew how to write code. We, knew, we were able to build a product. And we were both able to, to do uh, sales presentations. We, got, we both developed some skill at that. But there's all the other things that have to happen, um, you know, like, like we talked about. And, 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 and Sandy did everything else other than actually give sales presentations and write the code. And she just filled in that, um, that area of that very practical right. Right. knock stuff out. And, 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 and she was also like, I, you know, she's in here at 830 and she's gone at 5. That's it. You know, make okay, it so once Sandy was on board and, and the machine was a well-oiled machine, uh, like in, during that next year, how many sales did you gross? Three hundred grand, I think. About three hundred, I think, was our our best year. Three, three fifty, three. Is that right? Phil? I think so. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so what, what, what became of the company? What became of the software? Where did it all go? Phil, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, now you everything in hindsight is is twenty twenty, and so you know when you look at software like that, it, it's a vertical. I think that's the term people use, right? It's very specific. Um, and for that specific audience, for that vertical, the software has a lot of value. And for people outside of that um, specific niche, it doesn't, it's hard. So we, we built software, I think, that, that worked, but it needed to become horizontal for it to really grow. And, and I think we, you know, Jason and I had conversations about, like, how do we make this horizontal? Do we got to go into other industries? And there are some practical limitations. We've skipped over some details, but we worked with an author who was you know, pretty well known in that 
particular vertical on the educational side. So we had some authority. Now he was the best known. I would say he, he was, was the best, best known the, guy. The best known author in options trading. So, yeah. so it wasn't like it was two kids. I mean, one of the big things about one of the struggles with selling a product is who are these guys? I mean, what do they yeah. know about options, right? Um, and we knew that. That was one of the things we knew early off is that we're not going to be well-received. So we needed to contact an author who has material but may not know how to um, bring that material to uh, you know, the computer system. He just wrote books. So we had a, a sit-down meeting with Shelley, Sheldon Natenberg, who's a great guy. And um, you know, he thought about it and went over it and said that he would uh, not only provide material to the educational system, but he would help. And he got involved in um, you know, not the day-to-day stuff, but he, he was involved. Okay. And I think he was a great guy. So in a way, that was a very fortunate turn. So if we were going to go horizontal, then the question become like contacting authors. And we played around with the idea of going to like Unext and there were some universities and this space was starting to bubble and froth, right? You know, education is a big industry. Being horizontal in education was, it was, everybody was wanted that, right? And I think for us, it, there was probably not enough opportunity to kind of get the scale in that, that, you know, again, we were so young, I don't think we had the business acumen to really plot out a trajectory to where we could win horizontally. So we were kind of stuck in our niche, which is fine, we could be there, but then we had the other problem, which is Jason and I are sort of entrepreneurs by spirit, right? We don't mind running companies, but here you got two founders who are kind of getting worn out. It's, it's hard road doing these trade shows and pitching the product and, you know, when we ask like, what's the next version of this? It becomes like, well, incremental, there's no revolutionary changes. I think we just sort of emotionally needed to transition away from the founders into some sort of business that was more traditional where Jason and I maybe segue into new product development or something else. And it just was impossible to navigate that change. And also too, I mean, I, the, the other thing too, is I don't think in, in hindsight, I don't think that the company really had the, um, I don't know, it just did, it didn't seem to have the, the, the burning focus that it, would, it was going to need to go to the next level. Well, here, here's two things that, critical, I think, that were critical to why that happened, I th- that, why it came to an end, which um, are one, the, um, we really saturated our niche. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, we should go horizontal. I mean, we had really sold it to all the major players and a lot of the mid-sized players, and we were having a hard time finding people we hadn't contacted, contact who we hadn't already contacted or sold to. But don't those guys, I mean, like when you sell, when you sell a license, then don't, isn't it a reoccurring license, or is it just uh, like a one-time shot? We sold like, like an educational system. We evolved the license a number of times, but we ended up selling like a number of hours in the system. But it just, it wasn't, people weren't going to repurchase this, uh, licenses frequently enough. It wasn't like a reoccurring like monthly or yearly cost. Right. And there we wasn't just, a lot of companies that were training people with the kind of volume that, you know, you got some big companies that were pushing a lot of people through their programs. But you think of a small shop, you bring one guy in or a couple guys in every year, you don't have, it's not a high demand. The, so, the, so that was one of the problems. We, we were running out of gas and we were running out of revenue. We just were, we were, we were having, we couldn't even pay ourselves. And that's a story I've told a number of times, or at least twice. I know I've told the story in the podcast. I went over to Europe and in a last ditch effort and made a bunch of sales to sort of pay ourselves back. <laughs> but right. for the, for the, you know, 
for the two or three months preceding that point where we were paying ourselves like a, a, a quarter or a third of our monthly salary. So that was one problem. We're running out of cash. Our bank accounts in zero. But the other thing is that the, the deal with the investors was very bad. It wasn't like, okay, they own X percent, we own Y percent, and whatever re- revenue comes in, it's either reinvested or if their dividend's paid, it's equal. The way it worked is that they own like two-thirds of the company. And we would only we owned a third combined. We owned a sixth each, and we would own. But he and I would own two thirds once we had paid back the initial investment. But the initial investment was three or four hundred grand because they want because they had come in and, and insisted that we do some things that, that rolled up that ratcheted up the expenses. So we probably had a three or four or five hundred thousand dollar debt at that point. Plus there was an interest being paid on the debt, and it was was called a revolving demand note. And so the way it works is we have this this big debt, this growing interest that has to be paid back before we see before we really get our interest in the company, much less see any revenue out of it. So it was almost like it was almost like we were so far underwater that it's almost no point. There's no point in going on. Like we're gonna have to make out so much revenue to even break even that it just seemed like it was not in our not, we were not incentivized to want to struggle for for years, barely paying ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that's part of the. I mean, that sounds like a typical record industry deal, a, a recuperable, non-recuperable kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you just have to you don't you don't see a penny until you've basically paid everything back on the investment. Yeah. I mean, I think what what what, what Phil says, like, oh, you know, we burn out or things like that. I mean, if 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 we had been able to pay ourselves. You know, and we were paying ourselves a lot. I think we were paying ourselves like about sixty, sixty-five thousand dollars a year at that time. So it wasn't right. like we were paying ourselves a ton of money, it, but it was livable. And um, and if we'd been able to pay ourselves a salary and go along and then kind of expand the company, and it was and the and the deal was just a standard, well, they own you know equity thing, then you know we probably would have stuck with it. But going broke and struggling, and then having this this really, really bad uh, operating agreement that was never going to allow us to get our head above water, I mean, eventually you're just like, screw it, I'm, I'm, I don't want to... So it's the, it was the investor's mistake, really? Well, I mean, it's our mistake because it takes two people to make a deal, but we made this mistake when we were like 21, 22 yeah. and signed the deal, and we, were, we didn't have our attorneys really look at it. We just went into their attorney's office and signed it, like a couple of you know, dumb kids that we were. And, and as my dad always said, it's like if, an, a deal is, is too, if one person is too happy about a deal, it's going to be bad for everybody because once the other party realizes they're getting screwed, they're eventually going to stop performing. But that's what I'm saying. It's a bad, I mean, it, it is a bad deal for everybody because those guys set you up that way like they, they would have made a lot more money from that business if they'd have set up the right deal in the first place yeah you have to you got to make sure your incentives are aligned i mean absolutely and if you're going to get into angel investing or get into vc investing i think you have to keep your eye on making sure that everybody has a good time in the deal so did they make their money back or how did that work because it sounds like if you if you're pulling in 300 grand for a couple of years um, you've done you've done a pretty good job yeah, of getting them I think their money so. back. I don't think there was any. I don't think there was really, in a way, a loss for them mm-hmm. um, in in any measurable way that they said, "Oh man, we just dropped three hundred grand into something and it, it didn't pan out." Because again, you got to remember that all during this time, you know, they got to use the product and beta test it and and use it in their function. So there was a value that they were getting um, for the product and, and for their firm as well. Right. So again, like, I would say everybody, I don't know, Jason, I remember we used to talk about this, like 1.7 failures. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and there's what's interesting about entrepreneurial discussions, what I, what I love, why I love talking about entrepreneurial things is there's a million ways to die. There's a million ways 
uh, to that these things can devolve and fall off the rails and you can have everything right but miss one thing and it makes it a high pressure. It makes every moment count. It makes the focus hard. And if, if Jason says, you know, in my final analysis, given the fact we, we were 20 years old, we were, uh, you know, naive programmers, there was a lot of things against us, but we actually overcame those things. We didn't really do any market analysis. We overcame those things. We pivoted, but in the end, it was a bad deal. Well, right? I, th- I, th- I mean, I think personally, if, if I was you guys and I'd, I mean, it sounds like you you turned over, let's say, I don't know, half a million revenue, right? If I yeah. was involved in a three-person company that had turned over half a million revenue, I wouldn't care if it had failed because I'd feel so freaking happy that from the ages of 21 through 24 that I'd done that. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment in itself just to bring in that kind of revenue, to deal with those kind of people, to build a software. So, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't call that a failure. I'd call that... Uh, definitely success, certainly from well, your guys' point yeah, of view. Yeah, no, I agree with you. In fact, um, I, I totally view it as a success in the big picture of my life. And I, I would encourage anybody to go out and attempt to do things and don't get paralyzed with fear about, you know, is this, you know, don't get hung up on, on small details and get paralyzed because there are a lot of uncertainties and it's very easy to become paralyzed. It was a great experience for me. You know, my I learned a ton about software development, clearly the hard way, but sometimes, you know, that's the only way people, I mean, honestly, that's probably a good way to learn. It may be the only way a young person learns. And I got to, you know, have a great experience and a great ride. And in the end, maybe you'd say financially, it wasn't uh, a winner in, in the big scheme of things, but in terms of my experience, my life experience and, and having that as a bedrock to, to stand on for other things, it, it, it's foundational. You, you, I can't imagine where I am today being any, I have to attribute it to my experience with Jason and doing that company and learning those lessons and always take a step back and just remember like, you know, bad things, you know, not say bad things, but like trouble's going to hit you and you're going to have obstacles and adversities and you just have to persevere over them and find a way through. So Jason isn't just a guy who talks too much. No, no, he's not. <laughs> Actually, Jason's a really good uh, partner. Um, and I, I, you know, he's got a lot of traits I think really work well in the entrepreneurial space in hindsight, I look back and I go, you know, it wasn't a fluke. I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, Jason is, has a lot of energy, which I think you need, you need to sort of, and you need a razor focus and just sitting in a room with Jason watching a program, he's got this sort of intense, uh, focus where he can dive into. And unfortunately, <laughs> you know, like we found out that you can put that focus on anything, right? <laughs> so we're playing Command and Conquer or whatever it is and he's like diving yeah. into it and he's figuring it out, you know, because it's sort of like this generic problem-solving machine in his head and we're, we're doing this game with role, you know, and he's figuring out how the troops got to move around. And Sounds it was a lot re- like the way he describes Colby sometimes. I'm sure yeah, Colby will have the same. Is. Yeah, he'll follow the same. For our I, listeners, that's my six-year-old son yeah Yeah. so yeah in command to conquer was back in 1996 97 we're playing was like the starcraft of its day right real-time strategy and i was never a gamer and i I don't play games now the only times i ever played games was when i when phil sort of he kind of got me addicted to first we got a little addicted to doom network because finally we first set up a network for the very for the very first time we went and bought those coaxial cables and ran up through the office, mm-hmm. and we had, it was the first time we moved beyond. That was like '96, and then, um, and then, and then playing Command and Conquer. We're playing Network with our buddy Mitch, the uh, 
my friend of mine who's a stuntman. And the three of us sit there and play video games and stuff. But then there were definitely weeks of our lives that are just disappeared from that. And which is terrible. You know what's weird I mean, is I remember those weeks. You know how life kind of blurs together? You live yeah. for two years, you're coding. I remember certain moments that define, because it's so far in the past right now, it's sort of now become a collection of memories, which I hope are all true and then are false memories of this experience. But one memory I have is we were coding late one night and we, our office was right down the street of where we lived. And it was, I don't know, it was one in the morning or so. It was very late. We were really tired. So we walk out of the office onto the street and it was packed. Like the street was filled. And I think there was like confusion and disorientation and your head's in the code. So you're in a fog. And we both are sort of looking at each other like, what's going on? And it dawns on us. It's actually Friday night. And, 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 that, and the thought process in my head was, oh, yeah, human beings socialize as part of our cultural, you know, and I'm going through this whole thing explaining to myself what Friday night's about and realizing that we weren't participating in it and feeling like an outsider because you're so involved in your code that you actually lose the human side. You, you lose a sort of socialization. And I thought that was hilarious. And it stuck with me. Uh, you have to have a sense of humor about how awkward <laughs> after programming hard for a week and you come out of your cave, the things that come out of your mouth are just horribly <laughs> like not right. Well, that's right. Yeah. And, and even, even my wife says to me, if I, if I've spent too long coding, I will, you know, basically ramble a bunch of rubbish. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, one thing I'd say about that whole thing though, is we had an office in the middle of old Pasadena, which is yeah. for anyone who know who hasn't been to old Pasadena, it's really cool there. It's almost like European. They can walk around and all the uh, cafes and restaurants and things. And it's just, it's just a really um, great place to be. And we actually had an office on the second floor of these old buildings. Mm. We'd have our windows open and just playing the music. And it's like, you know, it'd be like a, you know, it'd be like a weekend, it'd be like a Friday. And I'd be like, so what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, ah, you know, Phil be like, I'll probably be in the office, you know. So it was a great quality anything, of life then. Oh, yeah, because even, even if – this is when we were in Pasadena before we moved back to Chicago. And it was, it was like, yeah, it was like even on a, on a weekend, you just – it was the best place to be anywhere because you'd be kind of in the middle of all the action. Even if you weren't, you know, kind of walking on your way to the movie theater or get some ice cream or go to, to get some, you know, Italian food, you were still right in the middle of it. So mm -hmm. you're sitting there working kind of in the middle of all this energy and fun. And um, it, it was just, you know, you just hang out with your buddies and kind of talk and joke around and, and argue about what music you should be playing and whatever. And so it was great. And um, yeah, I, it was, it was a, it was great. And it was funny because we moved back to Chicago and we had this office that was, you know, because this was like one of these office buildings in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago on the seventh floor. So we went to this really cool thing, to this thing where the windows didn't even open. And it was all fluorescent lighting and cubicles and stuff. Mm. But we were giving a little office on the side that actually had a door that would shut. And so we actually, because the fluorescent lights were so nightmarish, we went out and bought like three or four of these lamps, these little like, um, uh, I, I can't remember what kind of lamps they're called, but we had them, um, they were the, we'd face them so that they would, the, the lighting would, would bounce off the walls and be indirect. Like so it was kind of dark. Halogen lights, right. Yep. These three halogen. And what it did, it, it, the office looked like an episode of the X-Files. <laughs> Remember the X-Files? Everything's always dark and shadowy. Yeah. And so we went to the world. Like when we were out in Pasadena, it was like, it was like a 90210 Melrose Place lifestyle. It's sunny every day. There's nothing to worry about. We're just writing code when, you know, not fresh air coming in. And then we move and then our life is like the X-Files. 
because we're up in this dark, cold place, windows open, you know, dark shadows, and we have all these kind of like difficult relationships with people we had to wrestle with in the in the in the sort of parent company. We had a, that was a whole nother problem, and it was interesting because it was like two it was two lives of the company, two phases. Mm. And, and so, that, um, so you can see why the, the company sort of was heading towards demise, because basically quality of life plays a huge issue in what you want to do every day. Yeah, I mean, I know personally, I, I mean, it was, and part of it was fun. I mean, it was Phil and I in this adventure together, and, I'm, and, and Sandy, you know, the fact that my girlfriend and, and fiancé was working with us was fun, and that made the whole thing doable. But it was kind of a dark period in a lot of ways in comparison to life that we had had out in Pasadena. So I was itching to move out back out to California. Like, I don't want to get stuck in Chicago. And I felt like the longer I stayed there, the greater the chance that I was not going to be able to get back to Pasadena. But right. I think, Justin, you bring up a great point, which is asking yourself, why, why are you doing a certain company? And this idea of lifestyle, I think, plays a huge factor in, in those kind of decisions. Because if you like the lifestyle of Pasadena, say, don't build products that are going to take you into Chicago. And it, it's, it just, it's kind of like know the end result. Like, why are you, why are you creating a company? And wh- why are you doing these things? And if you can answer that question truthfully to yourself, and you say, this is what I really want. What I really like doing is I like coding and doing in the sun and having a good time. Then structure, structure that lifestyle. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about uh, building SaaS products because it just doesn't make a difference where you are. Well, depending yeah. on the SaaS product, but generally speaking, the SaaS products, you can just, you know, you, you could be on, you could be in Greece on a beach coding it. You, you know, it's really interesting you bring that up because when we first, our first version of the software was client server and Phil became the de facto like installer. <laughs> right. So if we make a sale, you know, somewhere in Chicago, Phil, like we make a sale to Swiss bank, right? And we had a big, big sale to them. So Phil spent like a week over at Swiss bank working with all their sysadmins, trying to get the software installed on their systems. And everything was on super lockdown, and, and it was a real pain because anytime you had to upgrade the software, get a new version, or you had licensing issues, one or the other of us, and 95% of the times it was Phil, would have to go and spend hours, if not an entire day, on-premises trying to uh, get stuff installed and, and deal with all their, their permissioning and security stuff. Now, were and, you paid for that? <laughs> yeah. No. And you, I'll t- well, well, yeah, I mean, we, we got, had to install it to get paid, but... It was, you know, expected that we would do that. But I always viewed those <laughs> doing those installs as kind of interesting because they were like mini mini adventures, right? <laughs> I'm, I just love seeing other companies run because you know you walk in and some organizations are very well organized. There's a person who meets you at the door, and he's the guy who knows where all the computers are. So there's a single point of contact, you know, and those places are efficient. You get a sense of how they're run, and in other places you go. It's decentralized. Like nobody knows what's going on. Uh, You've got to contact an individual is in charge of this machine and someone else. And I think that I had a blast in the sense of getting to see how different organizations were run. And it was kind of fun. I had an excuse to sort of go find people and talk to uh, technology people. And I've always liked the interaction of, of installing. In fact, growing up, for my dad, I would do, I would install terminals because I was, you know, in high school, I would go to like a helicopter factory and they would have these helicopters on an assembly line. And I just loved it. You know, you're going over there you're like, what do you do here? We build helicopters. Like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. You know, like, but everything was that. Like, what do you do here? We make hamburgers. Like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. You know, like, okay, I don't eat at McDonald's. But if you really go behind and you see the machine working and how all of the, the products get delivered on time and how the machines and all of it coordinates to here's your order, 
I think there is a sort of fascination like in how organizations evolve and how does, you know, McDonald's is a, is a good case study of seeing how, how to organize something. So it's just, it's fascinating. To me, I think it's a neat study and it kind of led me ultimately in life to go to business school and study firms and structures and how do you organize things. And Interesting. certainly at that time, Jason and I should have designed probably a better workflow system. We should have designed more of the corporate structure. Had we done that, I think we might've been able to pull other people in to fit that structure better. You know, I remember one episode, you talk about corporate culture and setting up that culture and setting up a structure. Those things, honestly, at a certain point become critical to, mm-hmm. to grow into a small company instead of just a handful, like two or three people, you need to have structure because people want structure. I think entrepreneurs thrive in uncertainty and we want to have all these variables floating around and we want to make a lot of decisions at the last minute. But when you look at the vast majority of people, what they're looking for is security in a job. They want to know where they, what their responsibilities are, how things work, what's the flow. Uh, and they want to know you're a going concern and that you have that structure. And, you know, that's a responsibility. I think for an entrepreneur that wants to transition into that next level, thinking about that, because it is important. Yeah, but, you know, so we after, you know, what's interesting about this is so we were this client server, but we eventually moved over to doing a web based SaaS model. And this is in 1998, before even 1999. And we, we, we rewrote the entire product as a web-based solution that was built using ASP and uh, SQL Server as a backend. And uh, at first, it only we made it so it was really heavy-duty JavaScript. And I remember I, I was the guy in charge of writing all the heavy-duty JavaScript, and you were, you were the guy who focused, uh, Phil, on, on the uh, database. That's right. And more of the ASP stuff. And I, yeah. But then what we did is we rewrote it so that it was, it would work on any browser. And this is back when it was like, you know, oh, IE4. Yeah. The browser wars. IE4, IE3. The clone wars. Exactly. And uh, so, but, but we had a very sophisticated, um, you know, software as a service model, you know, uh, that would work on all these different browsers back in 1998. Do people still use that software today? Phil, what do you what do you think? How many how long do you think it was stuck around? I mean, I'm sure it's gone by now, but it's it was on for number, yeah. number of years. Because eventually the the, the the licenses would run out and it would, the system would stop working, it would lock down. <laughs> how how did you, you know? do the simulation on the web on, on the web browser then? This the kind of simulation um, stuff. Um they were two things. We built uh, the, we had we had these anything that wasn't purely like an HTML, like a question quiz kind of stuff. Like we had these timed questions and stuff, and we call them skill builders. <laughs> and so you you did rapid fire question and answer stuff um, but then we, we had these other things that would come through as I, an IE they were what controls they were called like windows controls or something active X controls active X controls and they were net and on the and on the on Netscape they were they were uh, Netscape plugins plugins yep you hated plugins oh my gosh yeah because that was it's actually successful. there's a little bit there's like my, my back is getting tight it's like a, oh. a little crank in my neck is coming it back. It's just saying this. I mean, it was just think really about the Rolodex of things we just talked about: ActiveX, HTML, um, MFC, and this was Microsoft C back in the day. Microsoft SQL Server six point five. Or I mean, it, nowadays you just look at that arsenal of tools and you just go, "Whoa!" Oh, yeah. you you could completely do the whole thing with with JavaScript and jQuery, and it would it would be much easier if you were starting you know embarking on that same. Mission I remember today. when JavaScript came out, and it was like. A revolution in my mind. It was. It was like someone gave me. It was. It was light. It was a revelation. And I, I mean, even SQL Server has gone through iterations. I mean, I remember fighting with SQL Server in the early early days. And now, now it's a Cadillac. 
you know, it's got power windows, it's got power steering. I mean, it's not, it's not your dad's database. I mean, so, and now databases have evolved to where you've got a selection, you know, you can go out there and find exactly what you need. I always used to think that JavaScript was, it was a joke language because, because it was the language that you, you know, you'd go around and copy and paste. You'd find little, little people making things on the web. But then my, my boss in uh, Rudelsvier was really, had used it to build a whole kind of object uh, system, prototyping, all that type of stuff. And even then, I still thought, oh, well, he's just being kind of weird. You know, it, right. it, it's, 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 a, it's a jokey language, and now he's being weird, and he's taken it too far. But then, subsequently, I found out that actually he was really ahead of his time, and JavaScript ultimately is going to take over the We all went through that. We all, we all had that JavaScript um, moment where we all woke up and, and said, whoa, this is actually, we're all doing, you know, we're all secretly <laughs> programming in JavaScript to do right. things, and we're all addicted to it, and no one will want to say it because we all want to be hardcore C++ guys. But yet, we're doing this JavaScript, and um, I just well, I remember it. I remember Phil, you did, and this is probably two thousand two. I want to say, I mean, this was all a while ago when you were first working on your web QA stuff. And he, one, one thing he, one thing that Phil did, just is he he used JavaScript, but he maintained like a constant connection back and forth, so that it, so that like sort of people use AJAX. He used a, jo- a hidden Java control, yeah, exactly in the right. socket, and use the so could use sockets from Java to go to a Java servlet or, or server side Java, persistent server side Java machine, um, you know, program to the client side hidden Java machine, and that's communicating back and forth without refreshing the page. And this was like when was it? That was like two thousand two. I remember you showing me that back in two thousand two, maybe. 2002? That's right. That was actually two thousand two. Yeah, two thousand two, and I'll say it was like. That was like a cosmopolitan, right, with all different flavors. I loved Java's ease of network and communication to the server. That was ideal. But I didn't like its visual front end. It, the, the applet didn't look great. The tacked like, on, this grace, this gray. Yeah, gray. It looked okay. like, yeah, like it was really bad. So I thought, well, but you could drive the UI through dynamic HTML and you could connect with the Java applet. So what if, what if you just made the Java applet like a, a little black bar, right? And it was just in the page, but it was part of the design of the page was this little, little thing. And I'm not a sophisticated programmer by any means. I'm not, I'm not, I'm more of a person who sort of like tries to think improvisationally about how do we build this? And I said, well, I like this. I like that. And I like this. So can we put them all together? And right. you could. And I think that's, it's what's amazing about technology is that the guys who wrote the Java applet stuff wanted you to use it as an applet. And they, they had an intention. And then when it got out there, people started using it to do a different thing with it. And you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and that yeah, was that the, happens a lot. Yeah, it happens a lot. And that's, that, I guess, is the evolution because it was very useful for what it did. It solved a problem. Yeah, that was what... So, so just to clarify, so we, we worked together from like the... I think it was like March of 94 until about March of 99, Exactly five years. And um, I went off and I, I did on a couple joint venture stuff, different, like working this automated trading stuff, algorithmic trading stuff. And Phil went on and, and, and ultimately started doing consulting work. And this was like a consulting project. And so, so Phil was doing that back in 2000, 2001, 2002. And uh, just to clarify the timeline there. So what does Phil do now? Well, I don't know. Phil, let's ask him. Phil, what, what do you does, do now? I know. And this, you know what? I apologize to everyone who did not want a download of Jason's life. Uh, or <laughs> I, they're like, who's this stranger? Um, I promise I'll come on and we'll have fun and we'll talk about other things because um, I apologize in advance. 
I work at Thomson Reuters now, which is a, if people aren't familiar with Thomson Reuters, Reuters is uh, prim- primarily known as a news service, although they have a lot of financial data. Uh, they compete with you know things like Dow Jones, Newswire, and AP. And Thomson uh, Thomson is a corporation that has data, but they also do legal work and uh, medical and all sorts of stuff. They're they're in a lot of different uh, markets. So you're full time rather than contract, or no? I'm full time. Yeah, yeah. I'm a full time. I'm an employee, and I work in the markets division of Thomson Reuters. So I do data delivery. So we take we have a huge warehouse of of financial data that we aggregate together and we concord it and we mix it up. And hmm. then we deliver that data. If you were to look at what I do and you were, if you looked at our company and you abstracted it away into like a traditional supply line, you would, I would be a wholesaler. Okay. I, I, I work as a wholesaler. I don't write applications and I don't do distribution. So I take the data from distribution centers or data warehouses that are located around the world. And we write applications that take it from the distribution centers to um, applications that we don't build, and then the applications take it that last bit to to display it. So, are uh, you a coder there, or are you um, like on the the sales side of things? I am technically I'm an, a coder architect. So, I spend a lot of my time writing code and developing product, but I also do a lot of architectural design, and I I take those designs and I give them to teams to work on. So Interesting. It's a large organization, and we have a lot of people, and to scale it you want to have as much done that you can by as many different people as you can. So I try to delegate, which is hard. You know, that's a, that's a really hard skill to learn. And I, I think it's tempting when you architect something out to say, oh, I want to be the one to build. I want to do it. And, I, and you've got to resist that temptation sometimes to say, well, I know I want to do that. But for the, if I did this, it would take me three weeks. Um, if I gave it to someone else, it would take them six weeks. But yeah, it's twice as long. But in that three weeks, I could do something else. And, I, and the organization has been really supportive of me to uh, let me work through my hiccups. And you know, when I hold tight on something, I'm like, oh, I want to have the fun. I want to code this. What I've learned is that when you work with other programmers, it's exciting to see them having a good time. And that's what I've really I, I will you know, say, hey, can you, you know, this is what we need done. And you talk to them about it and you describe how it, how it fits into the architecture. And when you see them light up and they're having a great time and they're excited to, to do the programming, uh, I get a good uh, a buzz off of that. So I'm, I'm able to um, kind of delegate and let that happen and evolve. And I think it's a, it's a tough, it's a growth. You know, you talked about coming of age story. I think this is the second part of that is. So do you, you, do you manage other developers or? How does that work? Well, we actually have a manage a product manager, and he handles all of that kind of stuff. I actually come in as an art. So my role would be a, a part of this. Is, I, I actually don't sit on the development team. Right. Uh, the guy that I work very closely with, uh, he and I, we sort of, I don't call it a skunk work, so that's not the right word, but we try to work on next generation services and extensions of what we already do. So we're tr- we're trying to think of what's the next architectural change or what's the next thing to do to increase performance, decrease scalability. So we, we toss a lot of ideas around and one of them will stick. And when that sticks, we sort of really dig deeper into that and we start bringing in other people and start discussing, okay, how is this going to look architecturally? What are the tools we're going to need? How is this going to be structured? And then once we hammer that down, then we start picking off pieces of it and say, okay, well, this is really technical. This is, uh, we're going to have to write this aspect of it. But these other things, other people can write. And then, you know, it sort of evolves into a project management. It kind of shifts then into now let's build this thing. That's and, interesting. That sounds like a, like a sort of 
uh, I guess, an R&D role as an, an, an architect R&D role, which is That's very right. interesting. Um, it's a great role. I, I, I like it because I would say that my managing skills are, you know, B minus. The guys that the the guys that I work with that are managers, I think are really good at what they do. And I think it's it's not an easy role. I, I've seen a lot of developers, particularly at, at the problem with a larger company is sometimes the only way to move up is to move out of your role. And right. so you have a lot of developers who get good and they, they want the next step. They want the bigger, uh, you know, paycheck. They have to become managers and yeah. it's not a natural evolution for a lot of people. And I see a lot of people lose their footing because the, the organization doesn't have enough resources to support every promotion. Like ideally you'd say, let's promote this guy and then let's have a back, you know, support group, making sure that he succeeds in a manager role. Not really. I mean, a lot of these guys, they either have to the sink or swim. It tends to be, uh, you know, one day you wake up and you're organizing. And so they fall back on old habits. The old habit is I'm having trouble communicating with, you know, the people who work for me because I'm having that communication problem. I'm just going to jump in and do it myself because we need this done. And that knee jerk reaction ends up causing the person that you're, you're just micromanaging, you're doing the work for them. If they don't feel they they don't feel like a part of the team anymore because you're jumping right. in and you're doing it right. And you don't trust them to deliver it, and so I think there's a lot of problems with with that. And so I'm trying to work on that skill set. I definitely want to be someone that can nurture a team and, and grow it, but I have a lot to learn in that. Yeah. So the other thing that's good about Phil's uh, situation is he also works from home. Oh, nice. So it's uh, you know he, he has a sort of you know like he said this sort of skunk works R and D next generation architectural thing he does but he also gets to do it from home so that's, right. that's and he doesn't have the headache of having to manage a bunch of people and that's good and bad i mean i i totally agree like working at home is something that when whenever i tell someone i work at home immediately people are like oh my gosh i'd love to do that and i i love it but you have to be highly structured because to, you know, working at home is, is, can be very, very challenging. Um, so I like it because it's a structured environment. I can make the environment, whatever I need. I be the tools. I get the silence when I need it. And from their perspective, the team, Thompson Reuters is in over a hundred countries around the world. And we work with people and programming groups all over the world. There's no one central location anyway. And a lot of the stuff that I do in Chicago is with people all over the world. So it, my going to an office would be, I just sit there at my desk anyway. And it would be very little communication with anyone else that's there. Uh, so in a way, maybe that's the evolution of the business. It's becoming highly decentralized. Um, you know, this whole outsourcing movement and, you know, are you going to hire people full time as programmers? It, there's, there's a lot of questions stirring around. Like, how do you organize programmers together to build something uh, in the future? Are we going to look or is it going to look like firms? And, and there's a lot of business theory around what's the best way to organize people and why does a firm exist? Oh, I just, I just I want to say one thing. You know, one thing you say about like structuring his day, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, what's interesting is that, you know, we could college. I know for myself in college, I was very unstructured and I very, very inefficient about my use of time. Um, and then when we, when I got to the next stage, 
uh, when Phil and I were sitting out in California, we were pretty good. I mean, there were definitely there was a different period of time where we were playing video games and stuff. But overall, we were pretty good. But we started our days late. You know, we didn't get into work until like eleven, and then you know, it just you, you, you in the end of the day you start stop working around seven anyway or eight or nine. You can't work that late because it's like you, you know the rest of the world starts impinging on your on your life, especially if you have other people you know, activities you're involved in and stuff, right? But and then when I started working at home, and I'm sure Phil probably the same way, all of a sudden you got to be really careful how you use your time because you, it's, it's almost like when you're when you're living on the edge of a cliff, you got to walk. Be very careful how you walk. And when you're at home, you're 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 it's, you're so close to just totally screwing off and doing nothing that you <laughs> become very disciplined. And people call you up and they want to talk. You're like, dude, I, I can't talk. I'm working. Right. And at first people, you know, I remember when I first started working at home, people acted kind of strangely. They're like, well, why can't I'm like, well, if I start talking to you, I'm just going to screw off. Right. I can't just spend a half hour, an hour just shooting the shooting it with you. I have to, you know, work. So for the most part, you know, I avoid doing you know talking too long on the phone to anybody or running errands or doing anything other than work because it's yeah. so dangerous. There's this temptation. It's that, like I don't want to boss, you know, I don't want to have anybody tell me what to do and whatnot. So I'm going to work at home. And then when you work at home, you realize you have to fill that role and you have to structure your time. Because even if you have a bad boss or whatever the, the structure is, it's, it's the structure. That's the key. And people abstract that structure and they personify it on the boss and say, I hate the boss for giving me structure. Right. And, and right. And, but the, fine. But when you go work at home and you're free right, from that, you have to be your own boss. You have to provide the structure because ultimately structure is what we need to succeed. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's the only way to really succeed. If you gave yourself no restraint, uh, you'd probably, it, it, would, it would devolve. You would never really get anything done. So, Phil, the, the thing I want to ask you is that now you've gone through this sort of startup thing from in your 20s, early 20s, then obviously you've moved uh, into a consultant role and now you're basically in actually full, full-time position. Are you ever going to be interested in the startup stuff again? I mean, does that intrigue you or what, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I think if you were to say, where's, where's your heart? I think my heart's in startup. It's not that I, actually I like uh, corporate America to the degree that I think the people who work there are fun. I have a good time uh, talking to people and meeting people. I don't, I don't have... Um, an anti-corporate view. In fact, I see it as a natural evolution. Startups evolve and become larger and larger. And each stage in corporate growth to public company or whatever you want to say is the ultimate end is has to be navigated. And the people who can navigate a small startup situation, the kind of people or personalities that do well there are different than the people who do well running multinational corporations. It can be the same person. It can be an incredibly dynamic person who can evolve the entire way. Where do I see myself? I probably see myself more succeeding in the sort of early phase. And I think partly the reason why I like that is because it's so, it's, I love the jack of all trades. I love being, worrying about marketing. I love thinking about sales. And a lot of the stuff that I like, you, to touch every aspect of a company and to deal with every aspect of it, you kind of have to be there right in the foundation phase before they start function, you know, creating functional divisions and siloing things off. And um, if you're the CEO, then you're still going to have your hand in everything. But if you fall as a department head, if you become CFO or CTO at a company, you're going to be pretty focused. I mean, that's what they're paying you to do. And if, if you end up being ahead of a department, that's fantastic. But it, you might want to you know, continue to weigh in on this, the CMO's decisions. And it's, it's so awesome to know how all the pieces fit together. And I think great CEOs are people who are able to communicate how all the pieces fit together to everybody in the organization. 
but it's, it's rare. It's just a rare quality in a CEO that, that everybody who works for that guy knows. Like, oh, I know my role. I know when I go to work, how I add value to the company. Uh, but with a startup, I, there's, you know what you're adding value. I mean, when you don't show up in a startup, nothing gets done. And so you feel like you're right on the edge of, it just is that so very palpable. I think you can get those kind of feelings as you get larger. I think it just becomes harder. Mm. So yeah, I think I will. And, and it'll, I, I would love to, you know, part of it is the danger of doing it, another startup is that you do the opposite of all your mistakes, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? No, it's like, if you dated a girl who was like one way, then the next girl you date is the exact opposite. Oh, okay, I'm going to figure it out. So I think, you know, I want to, enough time has gone by where it's like, I'm not just going to focus on not making the same mistakes. It's really taking an organic view of, of doing it again. And um, I'm excited about it. I, Truth I, lies in the middle. It really does. You know, I think it's, there's, we, you guys talk about cognitive bias. I think one of it is that anything that happens to you seems more probable to happen again. So, you know, if you, if you if your startup failed because of some reason, even if it was remote, you, the prob- you think that the probability of that happening again is much higher, which is probably not. I was talking to Sebastian uh, yesterday, and um, Sebastian's um, he was working with me to build Swarm, and um, he was talking about texting and, and listening back to past episodes of texting, and he said that essentially it's a great education because it's quite well rounded in terms of just startups, and I know I know I'm kind of tooting our own horn here. But basically, just to, to help someone navigate the middle path, they should listen to texting. I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I drink the Kool-Aid. I actually have a really good time. I actually like what I told Jason was, I like the fact that you guys kind of veer off into other subjects. Like I listened to that um, geophysicist talk about peak oil and stuff. And I, I think all that really, it all matters because the more um, diversified your thinking is, the more you let other ideas in, even if they're non-tech, you're going to be a much more well-rounded person and you're going to be able to think more critically about stuff. And, you know, I, I do, I, I say that about anything, whatever you do, like open yourself up to thinking about other stuff. And I think you guys, it's a natural thing on your podcast to do that. And I would keep that up. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> How much do I owe you now? <laughs> Not too much more than that. No. Yeah. It was a blast. I was terrified of my mind. I was like, I, cause I listened to it today before I called in to do this. Oh, did? Oh, yeah, yeah, so, you have right. to listen the whole way through because at the beginning it's very scary, but yeah, then it gets better as it goes on. I was like expecting a sea monster to come out of Lake Michigan and <laughs> eat the city. I was like, I'm going to run. Uh, but now I do. I'm, it was. It was a roller coaster ride. You know, the best part got cut out, though. So, Justin, uh, so for any of our listeners who are confused what we're talking about, the episode before this 83, we interview um, um, Jace uh, Skivel. Is that how you pronounce it? Skivel? Skivel, yeah. Skivel. Um, He's a geologist, and in one of the things, I guess we're talking about uh, mining Mars or mining uh, uh, for elements or... Mar- no, no, he, he had just said that, um, that basically if humans left the planet Earth and went to Mars, that what they would do is they would start forming their own principalities and think of themselves as Martians rather than humans. Right, right. It's a chest that goes, um, yeah, yeah. So it's like if they're like multiple alien races who would they behave differently and they'd act differently and all this stuff. I'm like, you go, girl. <laughs> it's just like, oh, awesome. He totally went off on this alien tangent. And they got, uh, the Jay's like, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I don't think Jason's going to rest until you believe. Oh, yeah, no, no. So I, I, awesome. I, I basically did start talking about uh, <laughs> aliens to the to the guy, and and he was like, "Why, why are you talking about aliens to me right now?" And it did sound a bit weird, and I don't know where it came from. But anyway, I just decided to it was edit, edit it, it out. Was, it was definitely one of the greatest moments in uh, Texing history, and it got cut out. But I was just cracking up because I couldn't believe. I was like, "Damn, that's awesome!" <laughs> just in a totally well, like a- I'm glad that we don't do uh, like live stream shows like No Agenda do because that because at least that gives us the option to kind of sli- cut out any very strange rants that we do. Right. That, I think that's probably the only really weird one that I've done that I've actually cut out. So I don't know. That was great. Um, yeah. So well, I mean, how much time do we got left? What time is it? How long? Are I we think at? we're. I think we're done. You think we're done? Yeah. Nothing left. Yeah. Well, I we're, guess. we're we're over an hour and a half. Hmm. So it, it it was a different show than what we expected because I mean when when Phil uh, came on we thought that it was going to be a lot about essentially roasting Jason right and that's what the show been. was it could have it been. could have been I'm that. ready to go there in well, fact now that everybody knows my story we yeah. can just skip all that and we can just start roasting him because I'm ready to, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are ready to take him on so. well we could yeah. do that either we could we could start to roast him now or we could potentially do another show that was just about the roast of jason yeah well i you know i'm fine with it, it was funny because we just got into that story and i guess the story of renaissance research group is pretty interesting from us i mean what do you think justin do you think that well, works I, I, I think it is interesting because um it the, the very fact that you went to that level of revenue and then kind of pulled back and and it it ultimately didn't work but you were very successful in so many ways i think it was interesting yeah 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 too bad what we'll do is i have phil on either with the next week or two or whenever and 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 we'll just do like a more of a normal show that we plan to right you know this has been like an interview show but i've been interviewing you two guys yeah yeah yep yeah yeah, but now now there's a, now there's sort of a context and there's a story there and yeah. Well, anyway, we can get get down to. Well, let me just just before we close, from both of your guys' perspective, what what are the biggest lessons that you learned from that business? Why don't you go ahead, Phil. I th- give me an opportunity to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's interesting. Well, I think you know what I'll say. I'll say I'll 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 go first. One is, um, and this is a general lesson: is say yes to opportunities sometimes in your life, like take risk because, and that's an obvious lesson in some ways you have to, if you don't risk anything, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. It doesn't mean to don't measure, don't just take risk for the sake of risk, but it's not bad to mix it up. And especially when you're younger and you're thinking about something, there's probably a lot of fear and insecurity because of being young and new, but there's also an opportunity to do something. Um, and, and if you say yes to it, you're going to grow in ways, potentially, Jason has this, you know, when you guys talked about uh, that Sivers article, well, there's no speed limit. It really, if you do an entrepreneurial venture young, you're going to go as fast as you want to go. And you'll only be limited by yourself. If you do a join a corporation, you, there will be breaks. Uh, corporations evolve and there's a lot more structure to them. So, if you really, really want to hit the ground running, uh, take the risk on yourself and you'll be fine. You know, it's not like, I'm not saying throw all your money. I'm not going to take everybody take risks, throw all your money into some venture. But in general, a great lesson is you'd be surprised. That's, that's great advice. Yeah. For me, uh, one of the things that was, uh, I mean, I probably a lot of lessons, but yeah, one is, yeah, to have an adventure or have adventures. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, when, when I, brought Phil in. I mean, I brought him in because not only did I, did 
was I convinced that he would be uh, a good person to work with. I mean, he was smart and funny, and I knew he could write code. But I just had a sense that he and I could conquer whatever problems we we came to, right? I mean, I knew, I, I, and that's why I brought him in because I, I wasn't. I wasn't quite confident by, uh, that I could do it myself at the age of 22 or whatever. I, yeah, I think it was 22 that I, that I could do this thing all by myself. And plus it wouldn't be nearly as fun. And I wanted to increase my odds and also have more fun. And one thing I did is I didn't say, well, it's my idea and I got the funding. So I'm the big, big partner and you're the little partner. I own 70% and you own 30% or something like that. I said, well, we're just 50, 50. Right. And I probably could have made a pretty good case of why I should own the majority share. And Phil might have been fine with that. I mean, but the reality was by pulling him in as an equal partner, he had equal he sort of had an unequal um, sense of ownership of, of, of the experience. And so, you know, we went through, you know, we stuck with it for a long time and there were a lot of hard you know, sort of stages and stuff, but he stuck with it. I think partially, not only because, um, you know, just out of inertia or something, but because he had an equal stake. And so I, I think when you do stuff like that and you bring someone and you say, let's just do it together and not try and nickel and dime over percentages. That was one thing I learned for sure. I think that's really, really, that's definitely good advice. And it's some, that's something that I, I kind of would follow as well. I mean, that's yeah. what I've done with Sebastian. A couple, a couple of, uh, you know, another thing I'd say is, um, you know, one thing I really liked is that we went out and did it in Pasadena. And I said, you know, do, do it where you want to do it, right? I mean, if you want to do a startup somewhere, go do it where you, where you want to do it. Go be where you want to be. Kind of architect the experience how you want to. So, like, I wanted, you know, I'll do it with, do with a friend of mine. I wanted to do it out in California. I mean, it just happened it was in Pasadena, but I wanted to do it in some kind of new place that would be fun to be there, you know. So, I mean, like now, you could go do it and, you know, go to the Caribbean. Go to well, right, Europe, life, you know? life is the journey, and you guys, you, you basically made the journey your life. So, that's why you did that. Yeah, you know, I would, great advice I got uh, was view every decision you make in your life from the perspective of the grave, which sounds grim, but the idea is that you want to you want to make peace with the older version of yourself. You know, what is the ninety year old Justin going? What what advice would the ninety year old Justin give? You know, you're twenty six, right? The twenty six year old Justin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, what what would you tell yourself? I mean, and sometimes just listen to your older self, like view every decision and say, how important is this decision to me right now? What are, the, what are my values at? How do I see myself? You know, it, from the perspective of the grave, I mean, view it over your entire life. What, how do I want to live my life? And I think by stepping back and taking a larger perspective, the decisions become a little easier. And I think we all can sense that we get caught up in the small stuff. And we get caught up in the minutia that later in life you say, man, that was just some weeds. That was some thick mud and I stood in it and I didn't make the decision to get out. And now my perspective is that was just some thick mud. That was not my life. That was not who I was supposed to be. And if you can have that perspective, it can cause that break of the inertia, which is what Jason kind of says. And, it, and uh, that's really the freeing choice. Is, you know, is it about starting a business? Is that the goal of your life? Or what is it? I mean, really take a step back and say, how do I want my life to be? And it can be any number of things. So allow it to form in that way. And I think in general, you'll be better off. Well, guys, yeah. listen, thanks a lot for coming on the Justin Vincent show. It's been great to have you both on. <laughs> oh, we're going to roast you next. <laughs> Hopefully roast you next. Um, no, I mean, this has, been, this has been a lot of fun. We'll do the I'm reverse interview. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right well. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And it was great to yeah, talk about stuff.
Yeah, it was great. Well, we'll have you on again, and we'll we'll talk. Uh, we'll just do a series of topics and have more of a just general discussion show. Um, but uh, for now, I guess uh, that's that's a wrap. And we're out. Our guest co-host, <laughs> our guest co-host is Phil Amon, co-founder of Jason's first startup, Renaissance Research Group. Come on, that's not oh, that's really awesome. That's like balsamic, <laughs> balsamic, <laughs> Renaissance, 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 like the Renaissance. You know, the, you've heard of the Renaissance. We call it Renaissance, Renaissance. right? You know, proper English yeah. people call it Renaissance. All right, call it whatever you want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, now I see why you budget two hours for okay, this. Okay, you ready? Fucking... Right, let's you go. Ready? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, now, I'm smiling too much now. Wipe that stupid smile off your face. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> We're not even going to get this fucking thing started. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm going to end up having to do this intro again anyway. Welcome okay. to episode 84 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. What do we have? Oh, Phil, you're a really bad <laughs> guest. I don't want you on the show. <laughs> okay. Fine. Well, just... <laughs> Welcome to episode 84 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today, our co-host... Is Phil <laughs> today our co-host? I don't know what the fuck's going on here. Can I do this? Can I do this at the end? Do it at the end. Yeah, do it again. Do it again. Just at the end. Just do okay, I, well, I, I'm a bit Bless. confused with that. Welcome to welcome to episode 84 of Texting. Hey, myself, Today our special guest. Welcome to episode 84 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today our special guest and co-host is Phil Amon. Co-founder of Jason's first software startup. <laughs> Who was a co-founder with Jason. <laughs> Jason, fuck off, you get, right? Uh, you got the I'm, just, was, I'm just reading the web. I'm waiting. <laughs> Who was a co-founder... <laughs> Okay, it's not funny anymore. I don't know. I've just got the giggles. <laughs>